Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. Welcome. We have with us today Chad Pecknold. He is Associate Professor of Theology at Catholic University of America. He's the author of, or editor of five books, including The Promise of Scriptural Reasoning and Christianity and Politics. He's been with us before. First things readers know him well. Thank you for joining us again, Chad. Always a pleasure. All right. Well, you know, times are times are tense right now. We thought we would check in. You're a you're a professor tenured at one of the leading Catholic universities in the country, and so our conversation is uh, for us to hear from you about what you see going on in higher education, especially Catholic higher education at the present time. I'll give you one example that's come up and been making the rounds, and that is Loyola University has scrubbed Flannery O'Connor's name from one of its buildings. Why did this happen? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I taught at Loyola for two years. I It was my first job in the U.S. after coming back from my Ph.D. in England. And it has always been a very interesting campus. It's, of course, a Jesuit-run university. And its president, Father Brian Lenane, has, I think, always been kind of on the leading edge of woke causes, of progressive causes. And in fact, uh, Flannery O'Connor Hall was named Flannery O'Connor Hall as part of a big initiative um, for uh, environmental causes and literary causes and feminist causes. So even its, its instigation was already for these po politically uh, right-thinking causes. And so when Paul Ellie basically wrote a story for The New Yorker that said Flannery O'Connor was racist, uh, Brian Lenane, of course, as the faithful New Yorker magazine subscriber, uh, read the article and decided in response to uh, some petitions that they should take uh, the greatest Catholic novelist in America's name off of one of their halls and replace it with Sister Thea Bowman, which is a great replacement name. But that really wasn't the point. The point was to signal that Flannery O'Connor was not woke enough and Loyola was going to be woke enough. What would motivate a scholar to write an article in The New Yorker on uh, nailing Flannery O'Connor as a racist. Any ideas on that? Yeah, I, I have an idea which maybe is esoteric to some listeners, but I think it's correct, which is that 
The university is a fundamentally Christian project. In fact, it's a fundamentally Catholic project from its inception. And that the university has, from its very beginning, had theology as a master science uh, for all the disciplines, philosophy as its handmaid. And so in the form of the university, which is at also at the heart of the of Western culture, there's a need for an animating an animating creed. And we have a new animating creed which is emerging around this pseudo-religious idea of wokeness. And so you look at a figure like Flannery O'Connor, who both embodies uh, the American South in a in a time of, of racial tension, and she embodies Christianity's central creeds. She's a student of Thomas Aquinas. She's a convert to Catholicism. She's a, a literary giant. And so she is a kind of uh, an important figure to unseat if you're going to establish a new creed, both for the university and for the culture. So I think she's a perfect target. You know, when you say that the university really needs an animating creed, that, that clicks, I think. And this woke revolution really does have the dimensions of, of a great awakening, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm really taken by the um, by Daryl Paul and other people who have called it the great awakening. Uh, I, I think that's right. It, it does fit within the American narrative of these several great awakenings, which were characterized by religious zeal, by uh, a tendency to reform, um, sometimes sometimes violent, um, but always always with a powerful sense of vitalism and taking something, uh, securing some some good. Uh, all these awakenings do that, but in the past they did it explicitly on the Christian narrative. I think this great awakening um, is a kind of it it. It has many of the features of Christianity, but without any of its substance. And so it, it, has, it has the kind of character of the Great Awakenings, but none of its Christian claims. Um, uh, it's, it strikes me something Alexis de Tocqueville said in the 19th century strikes me as true today, which is he, he, he predicted, you know, that Certainly, there's what the pollsters still call today switching. You know, Catholics becoming evangelicals, uh, uh, evangelicals becoming Catholic. This this happens. Um, but Tocqueville said that in the future, this is writing 150 years ago, in the future, he said, I'm drawn to the belief that our descendants will tend increasingly to divide into only two parts some leaving Christianity entirely, and the others embracing the Church of Rome. Um, that clicks for me, that the sense that uh, there's increasingly people who are leaving Christianity for nothing, but still need the form of Christianity. They need something like its religious ideals 
And wokeism provides that. And so the Great Awakening, I think, is a perfect phrase for this pseudo-religious demand. What is the response to Loyola's removal of Flannery O'Connor? I don't know. It, it, it seemed negative to me. I, I, I actually was surprised that it got a pushback from people who don't think like me. Uh, obviously, everybody who thinks the, the kind of thoughts that we do uh, are going to have a similar reaction. But I was surprised, actually, that, you know, even even those who uh, who might be more sympathetic to woke causes than me thought this was too much. So we'll see. Yeah, I, I think probably the we'll see approach is, is correct. You know, the, the administrators, college leaders, they always think short-term and long-term. And a lot of them, they, they know they're in the driver's seat. They, they, they occupy the offices. And so an initial, initial response is always... There was a very canny, a canny decision to replace uh, Flannery with Sister Thea Bowman because they, they clearly knew that this would, this would look like uh, they were conforming themselves to wokeness rather than to Catholic mission. So they, they had a kind of canny uh, defense in, in presenting Sister Thea Bowman. But I, I, don't think, I don't think that that, that makes up for uh, the kind of slander, calumny that they have committed against uh, the great Flannery O'Connor. Do you think that the case at Loyola says something in general about what's going on in Catholic colleges and universities across the country at the present time? I, th I think it's a very good insight into a tension that exists, um, and, and not just in the university, in the church itself. Um, you know, you've got Father Brian Massengale at Fordham, essentially leading a Black Lives Matter charge. You've, you've had bishops who have taken part in, in uh, woke demonstrations. I, I was very fascinated, and I know this isn't on the university, but I think it's related uh, to Bishop Thomas Daly's response to, in Spokane, his response to his head of Catholic charities out, out there in Washington State, uh, where McCann, this is the head of Catholic charities in uh, Spokane, says basically that the Catholic Church is is racist. I know, I saw that. Systemically racist. We just think, you're the head of Catholic Charities. You know, he he was rightly, you know, criticized by his bishop, who said that Black Lives Matter is, is a movement which is in conflict with church teaching, you know, that um, it's disturbing that we have Catholic leaders who are supporting ideologies which so demean the Christian faith, so demean the church, uh, suggests that the church actually, you know, has always been from the very beginning systemically racist. And that's a terrifying divide that you see at the heart of the church. And so it's not surprising that you're going to see it uh, afflicting our universities to uh, my friend Jim Keating at Providence College was harassed simply for not uh, signing or not voting either way. He abstained from a vote in support of Black Lives Matter. And just for abstaining from a vote, 
my colleague was harassed at Providence College, a great Dominican college uh, up in Rhode Island. So this is absolutely coming for Catholic colleges. It's not just the big elite universities like Princeton and Joshua Katz and so forth and Amy Wax at Penn. And this is coming for our Catholic colleges and universities too. What do you see as the main strategies or tactics that Catholic leaders are following in anticipation of the woke revolution or the great awakening? coming to their campuses. is Do you see any approaches materializing on the part of Catholic leaders, or maybe do they not even realize how strong the threat is going to be? I think they, I think they are, they're either aware that there's a threat, if they're good and smart, um, or they're part of the problem. And, you know, I think, I think we have in a sense, both kinds of university leaders uh, in Catholic institutions. We have both the the McCann type figure, like the head of Catholic Charities in Spokane, who who actually believe that the church is implicit in in systemic violence and systemic racism. And we have people who realize that we're in the midst of a great awakening, and we better be smart and prudent about how we handle it. I mean, I I do think there are strategies that some smart institutions are taking, which is, you know, in a sense to to try to identify the good things that can be um, affirmed. Obviously, uh, our Catholic universities are committed to justice for all people. Um, you know, the, the church has always been committed to justice. St. Augustine and its great city of God says, what makes a ruler happy? A ruler is happy if he rules with justice. Um, Justice has absolutely been central to the Catholic faith and its moral teachings from the beginning. Um, where I think Catholic institutions are going wrong is in thinking that by embracing Marxist ideology uh, into its own <laughs> programming, in inserting Marxist ideology, which is the ideology of Black Lives Matter, that they are somehow doing the same thing, that they're somehow pursuing actual justice. And I think there is this kind of bad faith, false consciousness, whatever you want to call it, that, that I think too many Catholic colleges and universities are going to fall into this lemming-like behavior of just, you know, going along to get along when they're actually undermining the very goods that they want to achieve. You know, this is always raising a question for me when you mention someone like McCann or Catholic college presidents who end up leading institutions that they then trash. And it, how do these people get into positions of leadership in the first place if that's what they believe. You know, I, I think many university presidents are, they want to minimize damage, their damage control people, and many of them uh, think that the path of least resistance is the way in which you minimize damage to your institution. So for every kind of radical, you know, true woke believer, maybe Father Brian Lenane, I think there's also a, another, you know, university leader who just thinks, you know, how, how can I minimize all these problems? And the, 
the strategy of many of these men and some women is to say, well, let's kind of go with the flow. Let's say the minimum amount that we can to look like we, you know, are putting our green grocer sign out, um, uh, that we're in sufficient conformity to the new creed <laughs> so that we'll get left alone. In a sense, in a sense, just like corporations, uh, I think there's a lot of that in universities where we're just going to do the minimum that we have to do to appease the mob, to keep the mob from breaking our windows. Right. And you want to just make problems go away. You respond to the loudest and most aggressive voices. And that is certainly the woke, the woke revolutionaries. And pushing back, it just makes you their accomplices. If you're, if you're always going to do the bidding of the loudest voices, you're just, as a university leader, you've just become an accomplice to uh, the agenda of the radical political left, which is going to burn down your institution. And there are very few figures on campus who are willing to be loud in opposition to this, and I, I want, I wanted to mention one of them, who is, uh, one of them is um, Michael Adams, and and you followed the case of Michael Adams. W what is going on there? Oh, I mean, here's a guy. I mean, this is not as familiar to me. This is from the evangelical world rather than the Catholic world, but I, I can easily imagine. I mean. You know, conservatives are just sort of naturally drawn to the university. It's a it's a conservative institution, uh, as I've argued earlier. It's a it's a fundamentally Christian institution. But conservatives are like the loneliest, most alienated people at universities today. And Mike Adams was like that. He was he was a an, a leftist atheist who converted. He became a Christian um, just a few years into his career as a as a professor of criminology at UNC in North Carolina, Wilmington. And he basically spent most of his career uh, as a kind of lone conservative voice against, you know, progressive overreach in the university and in the culture. As an evangelical, he became, you know, uh, also a pro-Trump evangelical, which of course cost him friendships. Uh, I, I saw David French gave a kind of tribute to him um, uh, after he died. Um, but he his, his challenge uh, led him all the way to the end of his career, uh, having his university pay him the great honor of, of basically ousting him with five years pay and left with no more job prospects. And so in a fit of great depression, he responded to the devil's greatest temptation and took his own life. Uh, as as far as an investigation uh, decided yesterday, I think uh, that's the the ruling is that he committed suicide. But I think the the tragedy of Mike Adams' case is that you know here's a guy who spent his whole life trying to speak the truth as well as he knew it, and and the price of that was enormous. The price of that was was to be made a pariah at his own place of work, to, to be harassed, to be vilified for for tweets often, um, for, for making a comment on, on social media. He and and you know, 
not all of his tweets were prudent um, uh, or even right, but it affects a soul, I think, profoundly to feel that they are always an enemy of humanity, to be made to feel that they're always an enemy of humanity. And that, that I think, is also part of the great awakening, is to make sure that every conservative feels that they are an enemy, they're hostile to the human good. And uh, that, that had a very costly price uh, in the case of Mike Adams. You know, one of the phenomena that strike me in the woke revolution on college campuses is the way in which you will get hundreds, sometimes thousands, uh, signing petitions, adding their voice to calls that one person be fired. One per it's 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 everyone ganging up on one. You know, Michael Adams. We we know his name from many years in criminology, writing things against the progressive approach to identity politics and, and political correctness and so on. Did he have any people on his campus stand by his side, you know, come to him and say, hey, I'm here, too, because it seems to it seems to me that if you got two or three figures to stand up, that makes all the difference. If you've got 100 against one, that's one thing. If you've got 100 against four, that's, that's much more significant than just the addition of three people. You go after one, you make one person stand out like what the law school at Penn went after Amy Wax. Uh, the, the actually academics across the country went after Rachel Fulton Brown at Chicago. And, she, she, and we, we see this over and over where we, we find one figure that we're going to go after. And what, Chad, why aren't a few people standing up? No, that's a really good point is um, that, that in a sense, the, the woke revolution really, really works on this process of isolation, of, of isolating someone and making everyone who's even sympathetic, you know, to their cause, uh, shut up, be quiet you know, we're going to take this person down and you're going to let us take them down or you're going to get taken down. And I think that that real kind of mafia-like uh, thrust of, of the woke tribes, the woke mobs that run around is what makes it work. It, it works on an in intimidation racket, you know. Um, it works on also putting pressure on other influential people, you know, the, you mentioned University of Chicago and Rachel Fulton Brown. There's also the economist Harold Ulig. I don't know if you followed that, but I mean, he, here's a guy who's sort of, you know, part of the establishment, the liberal establishment, you know, who advises the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago and things like that, who criticized Black Lives Matter for saying to that 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 the police should be defunded. Uh, the movement put all the operatives on the scene. They got, you know, Janet Yellen to denounce uh, Professor Uleg. They, they, got, they got all the powerful figures of establishment culture to say, this guy has to go. And I mean, I, I, it's kind of overdone, but it's, 
the analogy to the the Girondins, you know, and the Jacobins is powerful to me still. That you actually get the Girondins who want to keep, you know, the order, <laughs> and and the Jacobins, you know, as the fiery guillotine, you know, crowd, as the fire throwers working together to secure the boundaries of the revolution. Uh, it's really striking. There, the, the French Revolution analogy uh, is, is a disanalogy only at the level of intelligence. <laughs> you know, if you go back to the French Revolution, at least the Girondins and the, and the Jacobins are highly literate people with, with a knowledge of, of history. Um, but our present day Girondins and Jacobins are, are really dull. Uh, do you find that a reaction is building, that more and more people are maybe in the coming months willing to step forward and do things like defend Professor Katz at Princeton, who opposed that letter denouncing Princeton as a racist institution signed by several hundred Princeton faculty? Are we going to see some more people stepping forward? I mean, I hope so. I mean, your guess is as good as, as mine. My my sense is that um, probably not. I, my sense is that, you know, did people step forward during McCarthyism? No. The, the professors were totally willing for, you know, the McCarthy hunts to go on. Uh, this, you know, professors are are famously not, you know, you know, what's the old phrase? What is the great vice of the professoriate? Envy. The great vice is envy. Professors do not support one another in good times or bad times. <laughs> so, I mean, I I just don't see professors standing up for one another. I, I just don't. Uh, maybe a few virtuous people who do it simply because they want the benefit of the virtue itself. But as a rule, I don't think so. I think I think people who stand up are lone courageous figures. Um, I think you're absolutely right that the that it's reasonable for people to say if you want to stop this, then you should stand up. You should even if you don't agree with somebody, you should stand up from uh, for your colleague. Um, but I, I guess maybe I'm more pessimistic in that I I want to believe that people will will follow your correct course of, you know, you know, beating this back. But I fear, I fear they won't stand up. If you look at the long term, is it wiser for Catholic colleges and universities, the administrators, the leaders to stand up and say no? Or is it wiser for them to go with the flow of the woke revolution? Oh, 100% they should stand up and say no. They they should stand up just as Bishop Daly in Spokane stood up to his Catholic Charities head. University presidents are much better off being like Bishop Daly. They're much better off standing up and saying, hang on, the church isn't racist. This university is not racist. This is an ideology which is going to destroy everything it touches if you give it an inch. Um, the long-term strategy is to say no to this. Um, you know, affirm some goods that are trying to be aimed at, um, uh, the good of, of, of justice for each person, rendering what is due to each person, that's a good thing. 
And to the extent that, uh, you know, the woke ideology is trying to aim at that, uh, there can be some kind of modest overlap of, of, of affirming, you know, you know, just ends. But I think it's much more prudent uh, for the university president who wants to preserve his institution long term to not give an inch. Yeah, I, I think that if a university president came out with a statement about the nobility and rigor of his own institution and warning against what the woke revolution means, I think applications the following year would go significantly upward. 100% agree. Uh, I mean, I, my hat will be off to any president who does that because you're exactly right. I think, I think that's the better... That's the better hope is that, you know, you get the right kind of king, <laughs> then that everybody's going to stand up and be virtuous uh, in defense of one another. The, the, right, the right ruler in a university can do an enormous good, both for his institution or her institution and for the culture at large by doing just what you say, standing up and saying, this is, this is the grandeur of reason we represent. Professor Chad Pecknold, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Good to speak with you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.